Welcome to the Irish Times Book Club podcast. My name is Martin Doyle, books editor of the Irish Times. Each month we pick a book and its author, and over the course of the month we publish articles by the editor of the book, fellow writers and critics. Each month culminates in a live interview with the author, which we share in this podcast. Before we get to today's interview, some information. September's book club title will be Inch Levels, a novel by Neil Hegarty. My colleague Laura Slattery will be interviewing Neil at the Irish Writers' Centre in Dublin's Parnell Square on Thursday, September the 28th at 7pm. It's free to attend. And as usual, you can read all about Inch Levels on irishtimes.com throughout the coming month. Our subject this month is Sheehan Connaughton and his latest novel, Married Quarters. I interviewed Sheehan in Bantry Library earlier this summer as part of the West Cork Literary Festival. Married Quarters is a sequel to Sheehan's best-selling autobiographical novel, A Border Station, which was first published almost 30 years ago. The books are set in Cavan, where Sheehan was born and raised. I began by asking him about his happy early years in the prosperous town of Kingscourt, where his father served as a Garda, and the traumatic move to another Cavan town, Red Hills. At the age of 10, my father was promoted and transferred 30 miles away to a place called Red Hills. Now, 30 miles in those days was a long way. Um, And I didn't know what happened to me when I was moved. And Red Hills turned out to have no water, running water, no inside lavatories, no tarred roads, no electricity. And I remember when, as we came down the hill in the car, my mother started crying. And my father said, oh, stop it. <laughs> You'll be all right. And um, so I lost my home. I've never quite recovered. But we grew to love Red Hills as well. And I've always seen Kingscourt as my mother and the harsher place, Red Hills, as my father. And I rode aboard a station about a young boy growing up in the Garda station in, in a place called Red Hills. I call it Butler's Hill. And uh, along the border of Fermanagh, a very unusual place, miles from Dublin, miles from Belfast, completely cut off, and an IRA campaign going on from 56 to 62. And my father, who had joined the police force, and all the men there had joined the police force after the War of Independence against the British. And um, they had seen it all before, and now coming towards the end of the days, here it was again, bombs going off along the border. So it was um, a very interesting place. And that was a border station. And that book turned out to be a huge success and done all over the place published everywhere, American everywhere, and the BBC did it as book at bedtime. I read it, and um, it was great. But I had, the boy in that book was only eight or nine. But I had the story to complete, and that's Married Quarters, when the boy is a teenager. And um, the strange characters that came there. My father was a disciplinarian. He was a very honest, straight man with not much imagination. But that was because the truth in his mouth was more lurid than anything that you could come up with. And the men that were sent there were sent there to be disciplined. My father's job was to force them to retire because they weren't fit to be guards or to straighten them out. And uh, so we got incredible characters like an inspector, a guy who had been an inspector, but he was demoted for hitting a superior. Now he was a guard. And... um, people, guards who had great problems with drink, and they were sent there. But what could you do in a border village except have a drink? You know? So there were incredible men. And in retrospect, some of them were only a few years older than myself. But they all had unique stories. And the unique point of those men's lives there, I use that as a skeleton to tell these stories. For instance, there's a story in it called Quigley, On Good Friday one day, a local man walked down into the village shop and asked Joe McMahon, I don't call him that, he's known as Tully in the book, 
asked Joe for a copy of the Anglo-Celt, the local weekly newspaper. And Joe said, there's, there's no Celt today. Sure, it's Good Friday. And the man said, oh. And he walked out, crossed the road, went into the hay shed and hanged himself. Now, that is incredible. And so the story of Quigley is all about him and the rope used to hang himself and what happened, the rope, etc., etc. So, So little things like that, which proved to be a wonderful skeleton to hang a story on. And each one of them I don't know whether I've answered your question or not, Martin. But no, that's great. Um, we were talking earlier on there, like one of the striking things about both A Border Station and Married Quarters um, is that they're novels that are constructed by really interlinked short stories. And I suggested um, that it reminded me of, say, some of Maeve Binchy's um, novels. I remember, like, A Lilac Bus. I remember her describing the way that she constructed that and similar works as like a bar of Toblerone where every so often there'd be a little peak so that rather than having just one main story with one kind of climax and crescendo, whatever, and then that's it, um, by constructing it as a lot of stories, you would have lots of peaks throughout the thing to kind of keep your interest uh, throughout the course of the book. And coincidentally, um, Shane, you were saying that you actually adapted uh, The Lilac Bus um, and Tara Road, another of Maeve's novels uh, for the screen. Yeah, I did. And I remember when Maeve was only a young woman reporter working for the Irish Times in Fleet Street, she interviewed me once. I was an actor at the Half Moon Theatre in the East End. And uh, then years later, I ad- adapted Lilac Bus. And um, then only a few years ago, I did Tara Road, that great big thick book. And... Uh, may have said, oh, you, you put a lot of sex into it. <laughs> and, um, but she was pleased um, <laughs> for all that. But um, so I think those linked stories, each story is separate, but they're also linked because of the boy at the heart of them. I think, humbly as I can, yeah. I came up with a new genre of writing there. How would you describe it or define it? Linked stories. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny you mention sex now because there is a smattering of sex or perhaps a smuttering of sex um, (laughs) throughout um, married quarters because obviously um, your alter ego Danny is now um, an adolescent on on the verge of adulthood and he's very much um, an observer. He's always, you know, watching in the wings when some of the other actor or some of the other Gardi, some of them are, you know, are prone to alcohol, but a couple of them are, are ladies' men, and there's some interesting amorous adventures. Um, how do you sort of strike the tone? I wonder, you know, maybe, you know, in terms of um, pitching um, the work and how you cover sex, so it's maybe it's suitable for, you know, for people's different levels of, of tolerance for detail or explicitness, whatever you want to say. Yeah, well, writing about sex is a huge um, thorny thing, how you do it. Because if you're over-descriptive, it's horrible. It can be very off-putting, yeah. and, and not to mention comic. But um, as you said, the, the boy is a teenager, and he's obsessed with getting a girlfriend. And the one that he does get which is in the book in the Quigley story, that was the hanged man story. Um, she really likes him and he really likes her, but then she announces she's going to be a nun. <laughs> so he, he pulled the short straw there, but... Um, a bit of a blow to your confidence at the time, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, but the sex thing, though... Um, like in, the, in that story, the rope that the man hanged himself with was owned by the shopkeeper, and he was also the undertaker, and he needed that rope for a funeral two days later to lower the coffin into the thing. And the boy, the boy says 
to the girl when he discovers that she's a bit religious, oh, well, because it's Easter, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, uh, we should do something to celebrate the life of the hanged man, something religious. And she says, what? And he says, well, we should go to the barn with the rope and somehow celebrate the life of the man who hanged himself. And she said, okay, I'll give it a go. So in his mind, he likens the rope to the cincture that the priest ties around his, the rope that the priest ties around his waist. And he persuades her that the two of them would stand in the middle of the barn and wrap the rope around themselves. Uh, and um, this is the rope that the hanged man used. And um, so he's getting closer and closer to her. And he's ready to kiss her when the door is flung open and his father walks in with the man, Tully, the shopkeeper, so all hell breaks loose. And then on the way home, she says she's going to be a nun and she's disgusted with him. But anyway, <laughs> that's a bit of a long-winded way to describe it. But um, Could I ask you, the book is set in 1959, so and you probably left Ireland not that long after that. In fact, I think you did. You, you went to... To England the next year to train um, to join the RAF. In fact, you were saying. But could you say to me how you think Ireland has changed since then? Obviously, in some ways, it's changed enormously. And yet, um, as Sarah Berm said in her Irish Times review of Murray Quarters, unfortunately, in many ways, it is not as unfamiliar as you might wish because you have, on the one hand, the guard of corruption. You have the terrible rural transport services, um, and you have, um, what else did you mention? Um, so could you answer that for me then? Well, um, because the station in Red Hills, which I call Butler's Hill in the books, uh, was on the border, when the 56-62 campaign was raging, we had a load of policemen in this tiny village. There was about 10 of them unheard of, because there's usually only one yeah. man. And my father was always being threatened with the station closing, because once the campaign was over, who'd need, mm -hmm. who'd need a border station? Yeah. And um, ironically enough, now that Mary Quarters has come out, mm -hmm. even though it was set in 1960, I'm, I was very conscious all the time of today, because just a year or two ago, they actually did close the police station. So you've got a village now without a police station, they closed the post office. They closed the railway station in the 1950s. They've closed the whole thing down. They've closed rural Ireland down. And it's terrible. And so from that point of view, the book is as relevant now. I was conscious all the time of mm -hmm. today. Yeah. And so there's nothing there now except a plaque on, saying that this used to be the police station. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, it strikes me that Kevin Barry, the, the other uh, great Irish writer, not that far away, lives in a, a, a former Garda station, a former barracks. Well, the, the buildings themselves were terrible. Mm -hmm. Like the police, the Garda barracks in Red Hills, they used sand from the sea to do the building. And so the condensation was incredible in the winter. The walls used to run. Mm -hmm. And you see, even though this these books are about one person. There were eight of us in the family. And with my father, the biggest child of the lot, my mother always said, and um, she had to look after us all every day, get breakfast for us before we went to school, cook dinners when we came home. How did she do it? In the, my father, there was three bedrooms. My father slept in one room on his own, on a kind of a military bed because he didn't want to be disturbed by crying children. And my mother had a double bed with the baby in a cot beside the bed. And peculiarly, up until I was 15, I slept with my mother. That meant there was just one bedroom, the other side of the house, with all the rest sleeping, topping and tailing. Mm. And I remember when my father came in one night when I was 15 and he said, about time you got out of this bed. Get out. I said, what? I'm asleep. He'd get out, and he grabbed me and pulled me out of the bed. And so what did I do? I went down to the other room and got in with my sisters. 
But we didn't know anything about Freud in those days, mm. you know, except Freud bread, you know. Fascinating. So, um, we were talking earlier about um, other sons of guards, Gardy, that became writers, uh, Dermot Healy and John McGahorn, both yeah. near neighbours. Um, you, you, you made the point that whereas you began writing a border station um, as your father was dying, yeah. um, John McGahorn, in contrast, wrote two pretty dark, um, explicit books, um, one called The Dark, um, whilst his father was still alive, which which struck you as, I don't know, quite shocking or whatever, because obviously um, the portrayal of the father figure was less than flattering. Yeah, well, that, that was a testimony to John McGahan's fantastic courage mm. and intellect. And I don't know what would have happened if my father had, had not died when I was writing the book. I don't know how he would have taken it, but mm -hmm. I did write a play called Jenny, in 1969, which we put on at the Roundhouse in Chalk Farm. And for that play, I got the George Devine Award at the Royal Court Theatre. And um, that, there were some crucial parts of that based on my own mother and father. And they read all about it in the, in the Irish press, but they never said a thing. Mm. And incidentally, Martin, when I went to Leytonstone, thanks to a friend, from Cavan, I landed on my feet mm -hmm. in Leytonstone. And the wife of that friend is sitting right out there now, Eileen. Eileen Wiseman from small world. from Bantry. Yeah. Very good. And so it's a small world. And you also yeah. mentioned another um, connection to the Gallaghers who helped, helped you on your way, the, the Gallagher brothers from Oasis. Yeah, when I was going over on the boat to join the RAF, uh, I saw this man, this big bloke. He was a really incredible guy from home. Uh, by then, we were living in Duleacon County Meath. And th this man, the Gallers were a wild family. And in actual fact, when my father moved to Duleacon, the previous sergeant warned him against the Gallers. <laughs> you know, it was like Ned Kelly or something <laughs> in Australia. And... Um, of course, I teamed up with Liam Gallagher. Those Liam, the Oasis guy, his uncle. Mm -hmm. And of course, Liam was killed. But on the boat over, this bloke, who was the granduncle of those fellows from Manchester, he was on the boat and he saw me and he said, where are you going, Shane? I said, I'm going to join the RAF in Hornchurch. I said, look, there's loads of work in Coventry. This is where I live. And he, he wrote out his address on the back of a Sweet Afton thing. And um, it, the energy of the Gallagher's was fantastic. At home, this guy, a, a little tiny amusement arcade used to come every year to the village. And there was a swing boats in it. And in the swing boats, he'd be standing up trying to put the other fellow over the bar. <laughs> and he was a man in his 40s. There were incredible mm -hmm. energy. I was crazy on football, Gaelic football. Liam, my friend, had no interest in it whatsoever. He only had interest in dancing, going to Kill Moon to the dancers on a Sunday night. And he was a terrific dancer. And I'd be standing very shyly at the back of the hall eating sweets. And he'd say, oh, Jesus sake, get out on the floor. There's one over there. She's bullying for you. you know? <laughs> and, but I still wouldn't be able to make the move. And, I remember once he went into a field with a girl and I was left holding my bike and his bike. <laughs> but he got married, had two kids and was killed at Drogheda Docks. And he was, and you know something? He, he died on uh, the 26th of June, 1967. And I discovered when I went to see his headstone just the other day, he was two years younger than me. He was so superior to me in every way. He didn't give a damn for church, chapel, anything. And that energy that Liam Gallagher and, and Noel have in Manchester. You know, the father, I knew him. Mm. They don't speak to the father. But the sheer energy, mm. and that's where art comes from, and that's where their art comes from. The machine doesn't go without energy. Mm -hmm. The machine doesn't go without fire. Great story. Shane, can you tell us then, um, just very quickly, how you got from starting off 
um, at the RAF training place in Hornchurch, how you became an actor, and then how you became a writer. Well, I, I, all the boys in Hornchurch were all Eton and Harrow public school boys. They all knew about flying. They'd all done it with their, with their uh, tr uh, training corps at those schools. And uh, I teamed up with a fellow who was from Yorkshire, and he, he was a big, tall fellow. He must have been about six foot four. And he was still wearing his kind of school uniform, a blazer and gray trousers. And, um, but he was from roughly the same background as myself. And one night we were walking around the barracks, a big square there in Hornchurch. I suppose it's still there. And um, I said to him, what's that big glow in the sky there? It was, it was over the barracks every night. And he looked up and he said, oh, that's London. And I said, oh, yeah? Well, I'm going to be in London tomorrow. And <clears throat> the wing commander said, you, you can't walk out like that, you know. Where are you going? I said, I don't know where I'm going, I'm, but I'm going to London. He said, I'll have to phone your father. I said, please don't phone my father. Anyway, he phoned my father and he said, your son is proposing to walk out and go to London. And he, he is, he's, got a, he's given me an address written on the back of a Sweet Afton packet. The old man said to him, well, that's the only thanks you can get from that book. You know. <laughs> anyway, next morning I was standing outside the base and I got on a bus and it was the first time I saw a woman conductress. And, um, she dropped me in Leytonstone, and I was coming down Leytonstone High Road from the tube station, and there was a bit of an old um, news agents, and I went in to get a copy of the Daily Express because I wanted to read about football, and there was a book there, a paperback book, um, and it's, it was called Earth by Emil Zola, and it was three and six. And I bought it, and I only had 30 shillings. Mm. My father gave me one shilling when I was leaving home. My mother gave me the rest. And I bought that book, and I've still got it. A fantastic read. And um, that had a big impa impact. What other books influenced you uh, growing up then? Or that one, certainly. The Ragged Trousers Philanthropists. That book should be on every curriculum. Mm -hmm. That was written by Robert Noonan, and it was set in the so-called good old Edwardian days in a town called Hastings, which he called Mugsborough. Uh, that, but then there was another, there was another man there, but then I, then I joined an amateur group mm -hmm. and, um, in Ilford. And why I did that, I don't know. It, it, so acting came first before you became a writer? Yeah, but I knew nothing about acting. Um, I saw Anya McMaster doing Hamlet in Clonus, and um, one day I was lying on the bed in, in Stratford, in Leytonstone, and I was reading the Stratford Express, and there was a letter to the editor and the, from the, the artistic director of this group in Ilford that were known as the Renegade Players, and the artistic director was a man called Jimmy Cooper, and he was writing saying, I understand why your critic gave us a bad review for our last production. That is why, but the reason why is our, our pool of professional actors has dried up of late, but soon we'll be recruiting new people and our standards will rise again. I read that on a beautiful summer's day, lying on the bed, and as soon as I read it, I got up, crossed the room, got some basil and bon, and sat down and said, dear Mr. Cooper, I have acted all over Ireland. <laughs> and, uh, and lo and behold, a week later I got a letter saying, wonderful to hear from me, come and do an audition. Mm -hmm. By a coincidence in Leytonstone and Harrow Green, they'd just opened a new library, and they happened to have a copy of The Bishop's Bonfire by Sean O'Casey, one of his lesser known plays. And I, I learned the railway porter's speech and went over and did that. And lo and behold, he invited me to join the company. You had to pay a guinea and one shilling a week for coffee and biscuits. And he told me they were doing a play. Uh, the next production was a play called Queen Elizabeth Slept Here, which was one of those terrible plays with French windows. And somebody comes in and says, anyone for tennis? 
Mm. And look back in anger, had completely kicked that kind of theatre out the window. Mm. But he cast me as the English colonel. <laughs> and after the first rehearsal, oh, this is incredible, all down the end of the room, this big place in Ilford, uh, the entire cast were assembled, and they were all looking up at me up the other end. And then Jimmy came over and he said, Shane, you're not able to do the English Colonel. How could I? I was 18, from rural Ireland. And he said, we can't do it, but what we're going to do, we're going to turn the English Colonel into an Irish farmer. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Six weeks later, I was lying on the bed, and I read the review. It said, the only other person worthy of note was such and such and such and such and Shane Connaughton exuding menace and with an accent you could cut with a butter knife. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the start of my incredible career, so never be able to gild the lily or tell a fib, you know. How did you get to Bristol Old Vic from there then? Then, because I discovered what I wanted to do, up to then I didn't know what I wanted to do. So once I discovered it, I was saved. I went to see every play in London. And if I couldn't afford it, I'd go in at half time when they were all milling out, you know. But um, <clears throat> then I joined another group, which was run by a man who had been to drama school. And I, I, so I, by now I'm really serious about it. And I got a scholarship from the London County Council, one of the last LCC scholarships. I got a scholarship to Bristol Old Vic Theatre School, one of the main schools. Fantastic. And um, I, I was elected, I landed on my feet. Mm -hmm. And how, how much did that shape you as a writer, um, being an actor, reading, reading play scripts week in, week out? Yeah, well, I, I went to a, a famous theatre in Stoke-on-Trent uh, called the Victoria Theatre. It was the only theatre in the round. The audience sat, sat on four sides and it was famous. It had been founded by a famous man um, called Stephen Joseph and run by Peter Cheeseman, who were seminal names at the time. And he loved writers. Mm -hmm. And um, he was always looking for people. We did documentaries there as well as Shakespeare and the classics. And um, if there was a bit of writing needing doing, he'd ask me and I'd do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it certainly helped. But my first job was in Perth Rep in Scotland. And Scotland was a strange place. You couldn't get a drink on a Sunday. And they never had a Sunday performance in the theater. And I said, come on, let's do a play on the assassination of President Kennedy. And, and we did, along with that, we did a production of The Dumb Waiter by Harold Pinter. But I had to go to the local sheriff to get permission. And we did the first production in Scotland on a Sunday. Mm. But it was, it was all... It was all great stuff. And in Stoke, I shared a room with Bob Hoskins. And we had Ben Kingsley, uh, Robert Powell, and incredible people. And wonderful, at, in that company, you couldn't slurp into rehearsals at nine o'clock in the morning. You had to be there on the dot, and you all had to do limbering up. It was unheard of. Mm -hmm. It was brilliant. So how can we fast forward from there to you winning an Oscar um, in, when was it, 1983? 80, in, 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 uh, in 89. Uh, oh, the, the first one was in 83, 84. You won the Oscar for a, for a short, short film. film yeah. yeah. That was based on a James Kennaway short story called Dollar Bottom. James Kennaway was Scottish. He was an officer type. And he, he was in a car with Peter O'Toole on New Year's Eve, and they got, obviously had too much to drink, and he was killed. And, but he was a wonderful writer. I think he did Tunes of Glory. I think that was his, from his idea or book. And what was the, your, your screenplay about then? What was the, the subject? It, it was a brilliant idea. A public school in Scotland, and this boy has a tremendous idea. He'd insure all his fellow pupils against corporate punishment. So he took a premium for them, and if they got beaten, he could pay them out, you know. And it was terrific. Um, and then that was, we got a few quid from a man called Jeffrey Katzenberger. He gave us 40,000 quid, and he'd ended up the head of Paramount, and he, I suppose he runs Disney now and everything. And so that was a great start. Like, it must have been amazing to, you know, to be there on the, the Hollywood 
ceremony, the red carpet, um, winning an Oscar. Yeah, well, it, it, it was amazing. Um, by then, I'd been in touch with Sam Goldwyn because he was interested in doing the film of the Playboys, which he subsequently did with Albert Finney, Aidan Quinn, and Robin Wright in my native village of Red Hills. It was an incredible experience. Um, and also, a border station had just come out in paperback, and all the producers wanted to see me when I went out there, as they wanted to see everybody connect with my left foot. Um, and when I'd, go, when I'd go into a meeting with them, I'd have my copy of a border station, and they'd say, hey, this guy's a real writer, you know, because writers are just ten a penny in Hollywood, hence the story about the starlet who was so stupid she even slept with the scriptwriter. Yeah. Um, you were right all the time, man. <laughs> Tell us about uh, My Left Foot, which is, you know, your, your other uh, huge success. You were Oscar nominated for adapted, best adapted screenplay for it. How did you go about um, trans transforming... Christy Brown's autobiography into um, a screenplay? Well, I'd, I'd worked with Jim Sheridan in the theater in Dublin before. We did an adaptation of Down All the Days, which is Christy Brown's best book by Miles. And uh, so I knew a bit about them. But anyway, the way I got that job was amazing. It was during the Dublin Theater Festival, and the actors had a club in a pub. And um, I... I decided to go in one night to meet some of my actor friends, and I got as far as the club, it was a pub, and I said, uh, oh God, no, I, I don't want to go in here and get Stosha's drunk and forget it, I'll, go ho I'll come back home. So I turned around to come back home, and then I, I stopped and I said, but I've come all this way, why didn't you go in? And I went in to that pub, I opened that door, just as Noel Pearson, the producer of that film, said to an actor called Alan Devlin, I'm thinking of doing a film on Christy Brown. Do you know anybody who do the script? He asked that question, I opened the door, and Alan Devlin turned around and said, there, that bloke will do it for you, Shane Connaughton. And that's how I got that job. Pure. So the moral of that tale is always going to the pub. <laughs> yeah, I intend to do that tonight as well. <laughs> Yeah, so that was incredible. So, um, one thing that's really striking is mm -hmm. that you know you you left Ireland in 1960, and yet your early years in Cavan are such a a wellspring of inspiration. Why are childhood memories, things that happened to you early in life, so powerful in terms of forming your personality, your your store of memories? as a, well, a wellspring of stories? Well, um, you know, the, the, I, be, I belong to a company in Scotland called 784. I don't know whether any of you remember that company, run by John McGrath, yeah. wonderful man. And 7% um, of people own 84% of the wealth. wealth yeah, the it was taken from The Economist, that statistic at the time. But um, there was a character there called Hamish Henderson, I think was his name, and he wrote a song about leaving home and going around the world thinking he was going to make his fortune until he realized it was all less than the treasure he first left behind. And that has struck, struck, struck a chord with me, but also because of that original thing of being taken out of Kingscourt and put into that other place. And also what happened in Red Hills like, for instance, in the border station, in, in the scene where the father has the epileptic fit in the middle of the night, it was catastrophic. Nobody knew about this. He'd had it when he was young. His father was a terrifying figure. I don't know whether psychologically you can have epilepsy as a result of trauma, but he erupted one night. And I woke up, I was in my mother's bed, of course, and my mother was running around like a mad opera singer with her hair flying all over the place. Daddy's dying, daddy's dying, daddy's dying. I was terrified, terrified. It was like somebody had run into your room in the night, everything black and, and flashed a photograph. I couldn't forget that. Mm -hmm. And all the things in that book are like that, those moments. And um, that was another extraordinary thing about the priest was summonsed, the doctor was summonsed, the doctor turned up, and he, it's all in, the, in a border station, 
And um, the doctor didn't know, what, what, he couldn't work out what had happened. Because this, up until then, the man was a completely healthy man. And um, he, he mumbled something, and then he, later on he, he worked it out. It was an epileptic fit. It was petit mal. It only happens in the night. And um, my father was prescribed a phenobarbitone tablet to take every day. And nobody told him what was the matter with him, not even my mother, in case it upset him. Mm. My mother was terrified because if the guards happened to find out that he was an epileptic, he'd have been sacked. We'd all been on the road. So that kind of thing was there all the mm -hmm. time. What do you think um, is the best gift for a writer? Is it the distance of time, looking back? What gives you more perspective, having lived away from Ireland for so long? Or is it the, the passage of time itself? Is it... Which is the, the more powerful for you as a writer, do you think? Um, well, it's hard to know because basically, basically I'm a very happy-go-lucky person. Um, if I'm walking down the street and I meet someone and say, oh, how about doing a script? I will do it straight away. But I don't know, Martin, but um, my past is very important to me. Mm -hmm. You know, so I've never forgotten it, no matter where I went, even when I was in Hollywood writing scripts, getting well paid, but not, not having a lot done. Does yeah. living in England, living outside Ireland, make you see Ireland more clearly, perhaps? Um, Do you need that distance? Obviously not, because a lot of great Irish writers still live at home. Well, funnily enough, I wrote a border station in our house in Rochester Terrace in London. Mm -hmm. And in actual fact, there's a little image in that book where the boy is in the wood uh, and he hears the pigeons closing their wings and he says something like the pigeon uh, with a prayer book snap of wings. You know, when you close a prayer book. But that image was from Rochester Terrace because I happened to look out in the garden and a pigeon went over. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it's hard to say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, you still have a home in in Cavan. Um, we were speaking earlier there. Um, I was up doing a travel article in Loch Ochter, and uh, the guy we rented the kayaks from pointed out that you lived um, just up at the top of the hill or over the brow of the hill. Yeah. Um, and it's a fascinating um, part of part of the world. We were talking there about um, Loch Ochter. In the middle of it, there's an island with a a ruined castle or something where mm -hmm. Bishop Bedell the who did the first translation of the Bible into Irish, was held captive. Um, tell us a bit more about the, the borderland, um, which has such a huge influence on, on your writing. Well, it's an incredible countryside, beautiful. It's also the most interesting part of Ireland, and that includes West Cork, <laughs> uh, because it's got two of everything, two religions, two politics, two sides of the border. There's an edge there all the time, and it's the same in the language. And um, very, very witty and very generous people, very generous with themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and it's where I come from. It's striking. There are those two traditions, and again, I'm thinking of that the the suicide story, and you know, we're well used to the kind of the unforgiving nature, perhaps, of the the Catholic Church, for example, with suicides at that time being buried not in consecrated ground and whatever else. But in this case, the um, the person who died uh, was a Protestant, and the same thing happened to him. It was a it's a shocking scene. Well, two things shocked. First of all the Catholics go as far as the church door and only your alter ego, Danny, and another character, McCabe, sorry, what's his name, McCabe, um, yeah. who's not otherwise um, a, a gentleman, but he has the courage or whatever to, to break the tradition and as a Catholic go inside um, a Protestant um, place of worship. So that shocks, but then how the family are treated by the, the Protestant a uh, clergyman who refuses to barely say a prayer over the, the coffin of the of the dead man because he died by his own hand. That shocks as well. So it wasn't just a, a Catholic thing. No. Generally, um, religion at that time was a pretty harsh master. That's true. Um, the, the local priest was 
a man, he called himself doctor. He didn't like being called father because he was a doctor of divinity. He, he'd been educated in Salamanca. And therefore, would you believe, he was allowed to go and see plays. And he, he forbade the local amateur group from doing Juno and the Peacock. And when it was being done in Cavan at a drama festival, there he was in the front row. Um, he also came, he, he used to come into our house every day. And you come down for breakfast to try and get the train. He'd be sitting there reading his breviary by the fire. And uh, I remember one day, I, always, I was always reading newspapers. I was reading the Irish Independent. And, yeah, <laughs> and the Irish Times was, was a Protestant paper. We didn't have it in Cavan. <laughs> yeah. And um, then, and I, I was reading. I said, oh, there's a bit here about Sean O'Casey. I just vaguely knew who he was. And he came over and he said, Sean O'Casey is like an old crow who flies over lovely green countryside, and when he sees a bit of dirt, he comes down and wallows in it. That's what he said. So you can imagine what a character he was. The, 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 the local, he also took the enormous fit of, when my mother was having the last child, of making a cot for this child. And he proceeded to make this cot which was a massive thing. It would have held a bull calf. And it was so big, it couldn't be going to the house. It was unbelievable. Uh, but the his opposite in the Church of Ireland was a man called the Reverend Dr. Gamble. He had loads of degrees from Cambridge and Oxford in theology. And he used to wear gaiters and a top hat, trying to pretend that Red Hills was Sussex or someplace. And... Um, Father Trainer hated him, and it was amazing. And all that talent of both men, we, we, we never learned anything about it. They never came into the school to teach us or, or tell us. You know, it was a terrible waste. Well, I wonder how they, like, you know, it was Sarah Burham in her um, review again described uh, the Gardaí as, like, or the Mari Quarters as a bit like... Um, Craggy Island for disgraced Gardaí. And I wonder perhaps maybe the priests and the vicar had perhaps caused some offence or whatever to be similarly banished to the backwater of Cavan. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? But you see, there was a landed gentry estate there and the vicar served the gentry. Mm -hmm. And that was a tradition there. And the, now, of course, they haven't got a permanent one but neither, peculiarly enough, have they got a permanent priest in Red Hills. Mm. They don't say a mass every week. It's incredible what's happened. He'll come and say a Saturday mass every second week or something. You're missing out. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> yeah. Tell us the difference, Shane, between writing um, a novel and writing a screenplay. Um, obviously, a screenplay is going to be dialogue heavy. Um, but obviously it has to have a plot as well. So when you start with an idea, do you know immediately what direction it's going to go, or how does it work? Well, screenplay, somebody asks you to do it. You know, um, you're commissioned to do it. And, you know, he who calls the piper, or pays the tune, calls the piper, whatever the expression is. And so that's one thing, like... Um, the, the Maeve Vinci thing, Tara Road, they had a writer on it and the script wasn't good enough, so they sent for me, you know. And uh, I tried my best. Um, but writing novels, that's my own work. Nobody has asked me to do that. Nobody at all. I've just done it to say, this was my life for my family and friends. This was what happened to me. And that's the reason I do it. What kind of feedback do you get? Oh, your, your parents had died by the time the books came out, but what kind of feedback did you get from your, your siblings, like you're from a family of, of eight brothers and sisters? <laughs> well, the scenes at my father's funeral were nothing short of disgraceful. In a nutshell, I had to call the guards. Consider the irony of that. Anyway, we made all that up. 
My father always said that the guards are there to stop families killing each other. And, um, <laughs> but we met up and then out comes a border station and boom, my auntie in Galway, my cousin in Galway burnt it in her open turf fire. Yet my cousin in New York, he started a whole um, chain of pubs called the Blarney Stones in New York. He, he read it and he said, I don't know what the hell they're all on about. There's nothing here. He was an incredible character. He emigrated at the age of 14. And on the, on the ship over from Cove, he said he had the best time of his life, courting women and everything, at the age of 14. <laughs> and he ended up delivering the vote for Kennedy in, that, in his part of New York. And delivering it for Nixon as well. And, um, and funnily enough, a complete irony, the Connaughtons were always very political. And my sister, who is still alive in New Jersey, when Obama got last elected on the, on the ballot paper, his name was on the top and my sister's name was on the bottom for her local area. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and my cousin in Gaula was the TD for Fine Gael. Who was that? Paul Connaughton. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so we were political. And my mother was completely Fianna Fáil. My father was completely Fine Gael. And every Sunday morning, they used to rehearse the differences. The first coalition. <laughs> Except, you know, my father, my mother loved De Valera. My father hated him. He, he, he'd go catatonic if he appeared, on the, if he was on the radio or anything. And, but then, of course, you see, all his people, there were an interesting crew. They came from East Galway, and they were all evicted in 1844. By, the, by a, a landlady, not a landlord. A, a notorious landlady called Mrs. Gerard evicted them all in March, and he never forgot that. And they got their land back, though, didn't they? They did. Mm. And that's a, a theme through this book, because he would talk about that. Actually, is now maybe a time, would you like to read a passage, Shane, from Mary Quarters? Oh, yeah. Well, I'll read, um, I'll read the last few pages of the book. Mm -hmm. um, this thing here I usually put here to stop the indentations marking my nose. But my wife said if, she, if I dared do it in front of people, she'd leave. <laughs> <laughs> I'd not do that. Um, so this, this is the last story in the book. And again, it's based on a, the kernel of a truth. Um, one day coming back from college on the bus, who did I meet on the bus but Patrick Kavner? He came down from uh, Dublin to Monaghan, and he used to, get, he used to change in Monaghan and get the cloners bus. And I met him, and um, he, he, he asked me what poetry we were doing at school. Or did I know any poetry? And I said, I do. And he said, well, give us a few lines. And I said, midst a sea of human faces of men and ladies fair, I viewed the Ireland final between Cavan and Kildare. <laughs> and I went on a few lines. And he said, mm, it's, it's, it's not bad, but it's not exactly Milton. And I said, oh, well, I, I can quote you some Lysidas. He said, well, go on, have a go. Yet once more, O ye laurels, and once more, ye myrtles brown with ivy never sear, I come to pluck your berries harsh and crude, and with forced fingers rude, shatter your leaves before the mellowing year. For Lysidas is dead, dead ere his prime, young Lysidas, and hath not left his peer. we just done it at school. So he, he was chastened and... and pleased, and the bus pulled up outside the barracks, and I saw my mother waiting there, and she was looking terribly worried, and I, I Mom, that's Patrick Kavner, and she said, God Driscoll has been killed, God Driscoll has killed this morning, and Patrick Kavner was waving out, but by then the bus went, and I never waved back because I was thinking of God Driscoll, 
and he was killed in a squad car, terrible accident. I passed the place he was killed nearly every weekend. But anyway, to cut a long story short, at the annual dress dance, the Garda dress dance in Cavan, you had to wear a, a dress suit, and my mother had to wear a long dress. And um, my father, in the book, insists on wearing this, the Scott medal he got for bravery. He arrested two irregulars, as they were called, after the Civil War, and he was awarded the Scott Medal for Bravery. He never boasted about this, but he said, this is the end. I'm going to wear it. And, of course, he went to the dance with my mother, and this young guard who was killed subsequently um, drove him. But he disgraced himself. He got drunk and tore the medal off and because he was told they were closing the station down. Anyway, that's all, that's all, I don't know what that, that's all about. Yeah, so. This is, this is when he, uh, well, it'll, it'll be explained. One morning in December, he watched his father out of the back of married quarters, washing himself. He was stripped to the waist, though it was so cold he had to smash the ice on the water barrel with the hatchet. His skin was white and in places had moles and red spots he'd never noticed before. He was aging, his skin collecting the evidence with each advancing year. He had thickened around the girth and when he bent to pick up the towel which had fallen on the ground, he groaned. But he stood facing the wind and a watery sun and took the freezing air deep into his lungs as if to find the temperature. That night he came in, having patrolled his sub-district for the last time. Then for the last time, after 35 years, he took off his uniform jacket and cap. Inside the cap and white paint was his number, 4447. He held the cap for a few moments, staring at it, then tossed it away on top of the dresser. They watched him his mother smiling. That's it, he said. He shook his father's hand, surprised at his own emotion. He was emotional because his father wasn't. His father had a boyish simplicity. He expected nothing much. The world wasn't going to change. It would carry on without him. He was surprised his mother didn't kiss or embrace him. In essence, they had become two of a kind. They were so unalike, so alone, and yet the years of isolated geography closed the gap between them. I, ne I, I never let the side down, he said. You did not, Agra, never once. I remember joining up in 1925. I got on the train at Woodlawn and Galway. There was only one other person in the compartment, a young fellow like myself. We journeyed the whole way to Dublin, Broadstone Station. We never exchanged one single word. Lo and behold, wasn't he joining the force as well? We met up in the Phoenix Park after. That'll give you an idea of the atmosphere in the country. After the Civil War, you couldn't trust a soul. Yeah, I know, Dad, you told us before. It was a hurtful remark, and he felt immediately repentant. His mother clucked her tongue reproachfully. Sorry, Dad. Ah, how could you understand? That was it. He had his hot milk and biscuits, and they went to bed. There's a few more pages, but that's it. I could have broken my back and sued. <laughs> okay. Just for the tape, she and fell off the stage. <laughs> Beautifully put. So that, that's it.
That was lovely, Shane. Thank you very much. Um, I should have said this earlier, but um, it was a particular pleasure for me to interview here today because back in the early 90s when I was arts editor at the Irish Post, um, we had an annual short story competition in connection with the Listowel Writers Week, and we had a very distinguished judge by the name of Shane Connaughton. Um, so I remember um, sending you the short list of stories and reading your uh, readers' reports and about um, why you had picked the particular winner. On that theme, I just wonder, as a writer, you know, as a, all writers are readers, and I just wonder, you know, as a writer, do you read in a, in a different way? Like, is it like a tailor looking at someone wearing a suit and looking to see whether the seams are straight, etc.? Um, how do you read um, what, you know, is it different? Um, well, different reading, different writers. I'm just wondering, is it like a busman's holiday kind of thing? Like, you know, can you sort of switch off the kind of the, the part of your brain that's a writer and just sort of, you know, appreciate it for, for what it is? Or are you kind of like a, a clockmaker sort of looking at the mechanism and sort of unpicking it all as you go? Yeah, well... <sighs> Straight away, you can see if there's something original there. That's for certain sure. That's the same with actors auditioning. Like if you're auditioning for drama school, the easiest part is to pick out the brilliant one or the really bad one. It's the in-betweens you don't know which way is going to go. And especially when you consider how many great actors were not accepted or kicked out of drama school. You know, but same with reading. But um, I try and read all the time for pleasure. Uh, the classics, I never stop reading War and Peace and Zola um, and Shakespeare above all others. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare must know something about it. Hamlet is the greatest play, it's still been done 400 years later. I start the day every day with, with reading Shakespeare. I just read Hamlet again recently. Now I'm onto the tempest, and you know the miracle of that man. Um, so I always tell people to read Shakespeare. He's done it all. His beautiful poems. I mean, how it was a miracle. Oh. It's an inexplicable miracle. So many great writers. So many great Irish writers. Um, the world is a wonderful place. We spoke even when you fall <laughs> off the stage. <laughs> One writer um, I'd like to just mention because um, he's described as the laureate of the, the London Irish, um, and that's Gerry O'Neill. Um, you mentioned him as he uh, ran a pub in, in London on the Balls Pond Road um, and had a theatre there called Sugon Kitchen, and he also wrote uh, several novels, uh, Duffy is Dead and Open Cut, two great novels about um, the Irish in London, um, and you knew him. Yeah, I, I knew him well, and um, the Sugon kitchen is what he called it, a Sugon kitchen. A Sugon is a chair made from straw, as you know, and um, he ran uh, that space in his pub, the Duke of Wellington, in the Balls Pond Road, and one day Bernard Levin, the great and famous critic, went there and gave it a grave review, and it, it took off, and he wrote a play called... God is Dead on the Balls Pond Road. Oh, great. It's, it's about a gang of Irish lads who were given the job of knocking a, an old church over the weekend and have to get it done as quickly as anything. But, of course, the spire falls down and everybody in this chaos. It's a great thing. But he wrote Open Cut was first, and it was bought by Central Television to turn into a film. And it was script. the script was done by Troy Kennedy Martin, who was absolutely famous, he's dead now. And Jerry didn't like it. Oh. And then, it's still there, then he wrote Duffy is Dead. Duffy doesn't appear. Duffy is Dead. It was well, very well received when it came out. It's a wonderful comic masterpiece of low life, life in London. It's a wonderful book. Thanks. That man was a wonderful man. 
And did you say you wrote you, you adapted that for? I, no, I, I, I discussed with him, with him doing it for an actor called Peter Egan, and um, it never got anywhere. Jerry's dead now. He was an amazing guy. He, he worked. For, he was the cashier for John Murphy, the builder in London. Amazing, and. Um, he was also a bank official in Dundalk at one period, and he used to play for a Northern Irish soccer team at the weekend under a different name, because he was a Catholic. And he was picked for Northern Ireland and had to declare that he was a Catholic and couldn't play, because the bank would have found out. You know, and then he went to Africa, he was a cashier in the mines out there, and then he ended up running a pub. And he, fascinating life, yeah. Fascinating life and tortured life. Because I was saying to you earlier on, his, his son ended up in Broadmoor. He was completely psychopathic, and Mary, his wife, said, we'll go and visit him every week. You know. Fascinating. All right, Shane, listen, thank you very much. I uh, really enjoyed that. Um, and now, perhaps, can I throw it open to the floor? Would anyone uh, like to ask Shane some questions? Maybe if you raise your hand and take it from there. Um, is there a roving mic? Yeah, it's coming now. Just. Um, well, I think you've had an amazing life yourself. Um, it, it, you know, all the different vagaries and did you actually go to the RAF in the end or did you just walk out? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't. They, they told me that I was educationally just below par, but they trained me as a navigator and then trained me as a pilot, which was a pretty good offer. Mm -hmm. But I remember getting their letter and tearing it up in front of Eileen's husband, Liam, in Leytonstone. And you see, because I, di I, didn't know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was completely and utterly wild. And the fascinating thing is that fate played a huge part in your life, didn't it? Like the fact that you walked in and at that very moment he said, this man will do the, my left foot. You know, all those kind of things that happened. Yeah, and when, when I got a job in that theatre in Stoke-on-Trent, a theatre in the round, I, I went up there and um, I met a girl there. And we had our first date on St. Patrick's Day. Her mother came from the same place as my mother came from, and our daughter was born a few years later on St. Patrick's Day, and we called her Tara because of the Hill of Tara. Now, that was fate. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just been a joy to listen to you. I really, really thank you. Um, that's all I have to say, really. But thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Before you can say anything else or anybody wants to ask another question, I just want to thank the West Cork Literary Festival people for asking me here today to this wonderful part of the world. I mean, it is a kind of a part of the world. If you moved here, you wouldn't want to leave. You know? And so thank you so much. And thanks for the library and everything. Thanks very much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, any other questions? Anyone like to Um did you ever consider, even for a nanosecond, joining the Garda Shikona? Well, in, in the book, one of the guards says to him, don't ever join the guards. And the boy says, I won't. <laughs> you know, but it, it, was a, it was a consideration. But funnily enough, my father, oh, that's another thing. You see, Everybody wanted a priest in the family. And there was a movement at one point that I might be a priest. But the most amazing thing was my granny, his father, his mother in Galway, in her will, she left a fiver to be given to me on the day I became Pope. <laughs> <laughs> and that is gospel. I haven't lost out yet. You never know. They might be very glad to get me, but you see, so, like I was saying earlier on, you know, the truth was always more lurid than, than uh, anything you could imagine. You had a brother join the guards, though, didn't you? Yeah, I did. My brother did. And, um, but he also had another thing. You know, he was a great cyclist, you know, so he won all races and rode on the continent and everything. Yeah. 
Thank you. Any other questions? Ah, oh, you must be exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> all right, if there's no more hands shooting up. Um, all right, um, we'll draw to a close then. I'd like to thank you all for coming, and thank you in particular, uh, Shane, for giving such a fascinating account of your career. Thank you, Martin. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Shane Connison, and thanks also to the West Cork Literary Festival for hosting this discussion. Just a reminder that our next public interview is with Neil Hegarty about his novel Inch Levels. That takes place at the Irish Writers' Centre in Parnell Square, Dublin, at 7pm on Thursday, September the 28th. We hope you can make it. <laughs>